Do me a favor, and uh, the Bible that's there in front of you, if you didn't bring one of your own, open up to the book of Obadiah. Open up to Obadiah, that is on page 644. And as you're going there, as you're, get, you're finding it, and again, it's, you'll miss it if you're not careful. When we first read the book of Obadiah, we might be tempted to regard its contents as a little more than a prophetic tirade. I mean, to be sure, we started this book last week. The shortest book in the Old Testament has a hard edge to it. Through the measured words and descriptive images Obadiah employs, one can feel God's indignation towards the nation of Edom. The Lord's repeated promise of his judgment in just 21 verses again and again can leave many of us wanting to skip ahead to a more friendly, a more peaceful passage in Scripture. However, there are important observations for us contained in these brief 21 verses. There are lessons to be learned for us both as individuals and as a nation. When we started this series last week, I told you that there are two primary reasons why the Lord brings judgment upon Edom, the nation of Edom. The first reason we looked at together last Sunday, and that reason if you weren't with us or if you forgot, was pride. The pride of your heart has deceived you, God says, he declares to Edom. Edom, again, to give you that background, was a small nation, full of pride, however, because of her strategic geographical position. Her high, well-fortified dwelling forged in the mountains on the eastern side of the Jordan Rift Valley led the Edomites to regard themselves as invincible, even beyond the reach of God himself. Pride is what week and pride in the biblical sense of the word is the antithesis of faith because pride is a denial of our need a denial of our dependence upon God and as we talked about last week apart from the grace of God we are a pride milled pride filled mess of self-sufficiency diluted self-sufficiency through Obadiah God warns Edom that her continued arrogance will not result in her unchecked ascension. It will only lead to a mighty and devastating fall. Now today as we press forward, as we look at the second reason for this reckoning against Edom, we're going to quickly learn that pride was only the beginning of Edom's downward spiral. Just a few verses today from chapter 1, starting at verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your, brothers, over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of nor gloat over them in their calamity in the disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. I want to encourage you to keep those Bibles open, though you might be tempted to close them after a reading like that. 
Obadiah confronts Edom with the charge of violence, of acting destructively, of bringing harm against Judah. The indictment, however, against Edom is even more specific than this. We do well to pay attention to it. Obadiah, again, if you have that Bible open, goes on. On the day, on the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Obadiah is referring here to a particular occasion, an exact moment in time, as well as a specific and wrongful disposition on the part of Edom. In 587 to 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Israel, remember it was a divided kingdom at this time, the southern kingdom of Israel known as Judah, the northern part was known as Israel, it gets confusing, the southern was known as Judah, the northern part had already fallen previously to the the Assyrian empire, but now in 587 to 586 BC, the southern kingdom known as Judah is invaded and savagely crushed by the Babylonians. That's what Obadiah is referring to here. And in that moment in time, Obadiah accuses Edom of standing aloof. In other words, as the capital city of Jerusalem fell, as the temple of the Lord was burned to the ground, as the people were carted off as slaves into exile, Edom just stood by idly and watched. Pride led Edom to turn a blind eye to the suffering of her neighbor. Edom was content to remain a spectator. Edom did nothing while Judah cried out in agony. As the looting and the killing persisted, Edom was not moved to come to the aid of, to defend, to protect a people under siege, men women and children being victimized right next door to her. What we clearly see here is God's judgment against Edom comes not just because of her pride, but also, even more so, because the Edomites stood by and did nothing while Israel suffered. My friends, Indifference is the problem God is confronting us with today. Indifference, complacency, apathy. Indifference defined as marked by a lack of interest, lacking importance, not mattering one way or the other. A fellow said to a man at the bus stop, the biggest problem in our country today is ignorance and apathy. And the other man replied, I don't know what that means, and I don't care. (laughs) Indifference. Indifference, when it comes to trying a new food, cheering for a sports team, or wanting to see the new Star Wars movie, indifference in these realms is not an issue. But indifference, being ignorant, being apathetic when it comes to people, one's neighbor, our fellow man, this is a problem. 
You see, indifference when expressed toward others does not even acknowledge the existence of the other human being. For the one who is indifferent, the presence of the other person is of no consequence. The life of his or her neighbor literally makes no difference to them. The hidden or visible anguish of that neighbor is of no interest. And therefore, follow this, indifference deems the life of that other person as meaningless. To the indifferent, the other person, he or she, for all practical purposes, does not even exist. Now, let's be honest. It's always important to be honest in church, right? Indifference can be tempting. Indifference can be tempting. More than that, indifference can be seductive. It's so much easier, so much easier to choose to be a spectator on the sidelines of life. The world, our lives, can seem far less broken or troubling if we just keep our heads down, right? If we just look the other way and choose not to take notice of our surroundings, what is happening in, what is happening through, what is happening around us, it would be more convenient to avoid or ignore such rude and frankly unhelpful interruptions to our work, our dreams, our hopes. After all, it can be upsetting awkward to be involved in another person's pain and despair. I've said this before, but it bears repeating. That's why we have sort of the universal way of greeting one another and the way of answering, how are you doing? And someone says, we expect they should say, fine. And when they say, fine, great, we can now move on because I've checked in with you. It throws us when someone doesn't say, fine. What am I supposed to say now? Well, if they say not so great, do you really want to ask why? Do you really want to know? Do you really want to get involved? Isn't there a part of you in your brain that just goes, no, 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 you say fine. <laughs> and that's why most of us, we, we know this, right? Because when we're, it, it's instilled with us, when someone says, how are you doing? Almost without even thinking, we just go, fine. Because we know it's not socially acceptable to say we're not fine. Because people really don't want to know what your problems are. People really don't want to get involved in your mess. And so even when we're not fine, we say, fine. It can be overwhelming. It can be upsetting. It can be awkward to get involved in another pa person's pain and despair. And beloved, that's why it can be tempting to turn a blind eye. But let's be clear. Indifference, as Obadiah outlines it here, Indifference, as Obadiah outlines it here, is a sin. It's a deadly sin. It's a costly one. As they stood on the side of the fence, on the other side of the fence, let's, you know, as they stood on the other side of the fence, Edom didn't actually participate in the siege and destruction of Judah. Nonetheless, if your Bible's open, as we hear in verses 10 and 11, through their passivity and doing nothing, the word of God accuses them of taking part in the crime. You 
two were as one of them. Out of a spirit of arrogance, Edom stood guilty of a sin of omission, the sin of indifference. My friends, even though we'd like to think that someone else's trouble is none of our business, God repeatedly insists, not just here in Obadiah, but from the very beginning, going all the way back to Cain and Abel, that we are our brother and our sister's keeper. God builds this expectation into his giving of the law through Moses. Jesus underscores our ethical responsibility to one another in answer to the question, do you remember it? Who is my neighbor? Jesus underscores this ethical responsibility through his story of an unidentified man victimized and left for dead by the side of the Jericho Road. Do you remember that parable of Jesus from Luke chapter 10? Do you remember it? Have we truly understood it? The shock, the scandal, the bite of the story that those one would anticipate to be the most engaged with their fellow man, those one would expect to be the best representatives of the God of all humanity, the priest and the Levite, the religious and the spiritual, choose to pass by on the other side of the man wounded and bleeding by the side of the road. Here, as in that story, God indicts those who remain passive, those who stay idle, those who fail to come to the aid, the defense of someone is in need. They are accounted as no less guilty than those who first took advantage of those who violently struck that someone down. Beloved, as followers of Jesus, we cannot claim ignorance when it comes to his call in terms of our duty and responsibility to one another. In fact, Christ commands us not just to love our neighbors, but even our enemies. Paul unpacks the very specific nature of this calling in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 2, when he writes that in our relationships with one another, we are to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul, in that letter, in that chapter, encourages and guides us in this way. He writes, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. When we remain indifferent before the suffering of others, when we stand by and do nothing, offer nothing, and ultimately just look away, beloved, we are no better and we are no less responsible than those who perpetuate abuse, hatred, prejudice, injustice, and death. More than this, if that's even possible, more than this, we are cheapening the grace by which we have been saved. We are denying ourselves the very grace that enables us to conquer our sin, to be who we were created to be. We are betraying the love of Christ we claim to represent as the church. John puts it more pointedly. 
More pointedly than I do, in his first letter to the church, chapter 3, verse 17, this is a verse we need to learn. This is a verse we need to memorize. This is a verse we need to let God inscribe upon our hearts. John writes, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? You know, you put this message together with last week's sermon And what we discover is this interconnection between pride and apathy. Pride, as we talked about last week, pride before God not only breaks our relationship with God, it also shatters our relationships with each other as children of God. And such pride actually fosters our indifference toward others. When we start thinking we're the only one that matters, We actually create a rift between us and others. And before long, indifference towards people becomes normal. Normal. And when indifference becomes normal, sin escalates and evil rises. The rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel argues this in his book, The Insecurity of Freedom. Hear his words. Heschel writes, There is an evil which most of us condone and are even guilty of. Indifference to evil. We remain neutral, impartial, and not easily moved by the wrongs done unto other people. He goes on, indifference to evil is more insidious than evil itself. The prophet's great contribution to humanity was the discovery of the evil of indifference. To be indifferent to the suffering of others is what leads us to become inhuman. Because to be inhuman is no longer to reflect the image of God in ourselves. To be inhuman is to allow evil to manifest itself through us. Talk about about an anti-incarnation. We were created to reflect the image of God. That is when we are being human. We are inhuman when we no longer reflect the image of God, but instead we allow evil to manifest itself through us. And again, this is where, gosh man, this is going to be brutal. If you have those Bibles open, as we continue reading in Obadiah, as we look at it again this morning, we witness the truth of what I just said. I just dropped something heavy right here. This idea of indifference leading to our inhumanity, that our inhumanity is where evil rises. But if you open those Bibles, or if you have them open, as you go back to what we just read, we witness the truth of this this statement. Look at it very quickly. Edom moves from being aloof, indifference towards even more horrific and wicked actions. Verse 12 through 14, we're just talking three verses, but in three verses, God gives a series of eight prohibitions, each one of them beginning with a specific negative in Hebrew and translated, you should not have. You should not have. 
And if you look at it, you can notice how the verbs progress in involvement from an internal attitude, starting in the mind, in the heart, and they go towards an outward action. In verse 12, Edom shifts from turning a blind eye towards Judah to literally rejoicing, gloating and mocking her misery and her downfall. And then with verse 13, we learn Edom's bad behavior doesn't cease with being callously smug, with cruelly ridiculing Judah. No, in verse 13, we're told the Edomites quickly transition from standing on the sidelines to entering the city and plundering whatever the Babylonians left behind. It is the grim picture of robbing a graveyard. But my friends, it is a graveyard not filled with those who are dead, but with those who have been left for dead, who are dying right in front of you. This is a picture in, uh, characterizing the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That is the picture of one man lying dead, half dead on the side of the road. Picture a city filled with people like this. Dying and crying out in agony and picture of people coming through and walking over the bodies, not of the dead, but of the living and taking, taking what's been left. But Edom doesn't stop there. In his verse 14 details, the Edomites' internal indifference ultimately becomes an external practice of disregard for human life. If you read it, it's It's horrible. Those who have managed to survive the attack and the devastation of their homeland in Judah try to find refuge, but they don't get very far as the Edomites wait at the crossroads for them. No act is considered too low in the process of exploiting their neighbor's vulnerability as Edom ambushes the fugitives from Judah and those they do not kill, Edom hands over to the Babylonians to become slaves. And we didn't read it this morning, but the Bible's open. Skip ahead to verse 16. We're going to look at it. We're going to look at the next set of verses next week, but skip ahead to verse 16 because that leaves us with a final disturbing picture. When Edom finishes her dirty work, she goes to the wine vats. The Edomites get drunk and party as Judah continues to burn and her people cry out in tears. You can tell I don't, I don't have a poker face. I'm emotional right now. I, I, I hope you, I don't know how you cannot be. You read an account like this one, you picture it as I've tried to do for you in your mind and our hearts break at the thought of such cruelty. Our blood boils with indignation over those who could have helped but instead willfully chose to prey on the misfortune of others. We get pretty fired up about it. We can't believe that something like this could ever happen. But what we miss is we are not so far removed from this kind of evil. Beloved, you know, there's just some Sundays where you don't want to come to church. Pastors have them too. There are some words you don't want to preach. And this message has been haunting me all week long. This word has been haunting me all week long. I know this is a hard word today. It's been hard for me. And it's not my intention, if this is how you felt so far, I'm so sensitive to this, for you to feel like I'm preaching at you. Because believe me, 
as I read this, as I, I, God gives me these words, I am hearing with you, I am with you, hearing the conviction of this word today. And what I'm about to share with you is part of my sermon prep. It's what I journaled after I read the passage. Because that's the only way I know how to help you to enter into where I'm at. Rather than try to put this on you, presume that you feel like I do, I just want to simply share what, when I reflected on this text to prepare for this sermon, what God put upon my heart for myself. And, And you may relate, you may not. But I hear this word. I picture this scene. And I may not literally be kicking someone when they're down. I may not be selling another person into slavery. But out of my pride, out of my indifference towards others, am I enabling such conditions to exist in my father's world? How often do I pass by on the other side of the road when I obviously see, when I clearly sense another person is not fine, when they're hurting, when someone is in need, the wounded warriors, the homeless refugees, the political prisoners, the child soldiers, the starving faces, the silent screams of the unborn, the countless victims of sex trafficking. I could go on and I ask myself, just how far will I turn my head to look the other way? And can I honestly say, My happiness, my security is not at all built on someone else's disadvantage and misery. I hear of fair trade coffee and sweatshops and I could go on and on, but how far am I willing to turn my head to look the other way? Don't I rationalize? Don't I rationalize what I have as what I deserve? As what I've earned? When others try to force me to look to see, to think, let alone to act differently. Don't I take offense? Don't I want to change the channel? Don't I want to shift the discussion? Or worse, don't I want to blame the victim? And as much as I resist admitting it, aren't there times when I secretly take pleasure in the difficulties and misfortune of others? Isn't it true? I sometimes exalt in another's failure or weakness because it soothes my own sense of inadequacy or it magnifies my own sense of success. I get passionate, you know that. I get fired up. I get indignant and I get exasperated about the sin of others. But am I indifferent towards my own sin? I want justice. I want justice. I want justice so bad that I can be content sometimes to sit in judgment for God. I'm so confident about who deserves to be punished. Do I ever step back and realize I am no less deserving of God's judgment and reckoning. But you want to read the rest of my journal, right? (laughs) Where am I going with all this? Do 
Do I want us to just leave today with our heads down and our tail between our legs? Is that what I want? No. No. My hope, my prayer for us today is to wake up. To wake up. To stop being motionless and immovable. Together, we need to confront the truth about the nature of evil, how evil overtakes us, the evil that can come out of us, the evil to which we can become complicit. One inappropriate action always leads to a transgression. What we learn from the story of Edom is little sins beget bigger sins. What we learn from the story of Edom is to ignore evil, is to promote evil, and it is ultimately to participate in evil. Edom's pride led to Edom's insensitivity, and Edom's indifference eventually resulted in Edom's exploitation of Judah until the Edomites ultimately became inhuman. And that's the thing. When we deny the humanity of another person, we betray, we lose our own humanity. And in this way, indifference is not only a sin, indifference is a punishment, a punishment we inflict on ourselves. Beloved, we are tapping into, we are wrestling with something today that is foundational in our appreciation of how broken we are. And I go here not wanting to go here just for myself, let alone for all of us. I go here because it's when we confront the possibility, when we confront the reality of our inhumanity that we are drawn closer to our Father's goodness and glory. It is when we confront the possibility, the reality of our own inhumanity, our brokenness, that we hold even more tightly in dependence upon Jesus to show us the way, to teach us the truth, and to give us life. We need to let it sink in that, thank God, the Lord is not indifferent towards us. Right? Thank God. The Lord is not indifferent towards us. Even though we all have blood on our hands, we have hope through the work of the cross, the love of Christ that embraces us, that heals us, that transforms us, even as we look away and deny the one who came to save us all. We need to stop and pause and thank God that God is not indifferent towards us. That we have hope through the work of the cross. That we have hope through the love of Christ. And I know some of you may be hearing this message and, and one place that you can go, my mind goes, is I'm hesitant to get involved. I'm reluctant because I'm afraid. I'm hesitant to get involved. I'm reluctant because I'm afraid. I'm afraid I don't know what to say. I'm afraid I don't know what to do. It's too much. I'm afraid that in the midst of all of it, I have nothing to offer. What difference can I make? I feel like anything that I try to do is going to be nothing compared to how much is going on. 
Beloved, if that's your fear, if your fear's like mine, if you're afraid of not knowing what to say or to do, if you're afraid of perceiving that you have nothing to offer and that's why you're reluctant to get involved, that's why you hesitate, let that fear be cast out by the love we have been given by Jesus Christ. Let that fear be cast out by the love you and I have been given by Jesus Christ because love is what we have been given. Love that isn't sentimental or passive. Love that is sacrificial. Love that is absolute. Love that is without condition. Indifference is not compatible with love like this. Love like this does not celebrate the judgment of people anywhere. Love like this yearns for the salvation of all persons everywhere. Evil, mockery, Carelessness, neglect, exploitation, abandonment cannot inhabit love like this because the love of Christ conquers all. My friends, the love of Jesus, the love of Jesus makes us human in an inhumane world. The love of Jesus makes us human in an inhumane world. The love of Christ is what we have been given and the love, such love, is that is what we have to share. It's this love that we have to share from Christ that refuses to turn a blind eye. It's this love that we have from Christ that dares to get involved. It's this love that bears all things. It's this love that endures all things. It's this love that is rooted in the hope of Jesus who's defeated sin, who's conquered death, and this Jesus who is making all things new. When you step back like me and you're afraid that you don't know what to say or do, that you don't have anything to offer, you're right. I'm right. We have nothing to say. There is nothing we can do. We have nothing to offer apart from Christ. But in Christ, Jesus working in you and me, there is much to be said. There is much to be done. And there is a lot God can do through us. It does not come as a coincidence to me that this is Martin Luther King weekend. Because indifference marked much of the struggle of Dr. Martin Luther King in the midst of the civil rights movement. And he wrote many words, but Dr. Martin Luther King wrote these words that I'm going to read to you today. Cowardice asks the question, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, is it polit politic? Vanity asks the question, is it popular? But conscience asks the question, is it right? There comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular, but one must take it because it is right. My friends, by the grace of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, instructed by the word of the Lord, we can love we can all love like Christ. How? We can love by listening. We can love by listening, by taking the time to get to know people's stories. When you commit to spending time paying attention and actually listening to another person, you will learn their story as they choose to share their lives with you. And as you listen to them, you will realize they are as much of a mess as you are. Needing the grace of God every day. 
And as you listen and as you perceive Christ at work in and through them, you will gain the ability to love them like Jesus. You will not gain the ability to love like Christ if all you're ever doing is talking at someone. If all you're ever doing is dominating the conversation. But if you're willing to listen, if you're willing to hear, if you're willing to perceive Christ in that person, you will suddenly find yourself with this capacity that is beyond yourself to love, to care, to engage that person. And as you love them boldly and courageously, you may not or you may be able to help them but as you continue not only to listen them, to them, but to get involved in their lives, to be present, you may or may not be able to help them, but if you don't give up, God will lead you in that relationship to others you know. Others you know, people you know in passing. You just met them, you just encountered them, or people that you know in person, you've known for years. God will lead you to people who can help, who can help them. It sounds easy. Love. But if we truly let Christ reign in our lives, God's grace to work in us, to love like Christ is not easy. It is, as I described it before, it is sacrificial. It is absolute. It is unconditional. But that kind of love, that kind of love that is the love of Christ, conquers all. There is no, no fear of indifference. There is no room for sin and death because that is the kind of love that resurrects. Obadiah's vision here. God. <laughs> Obadiah's vision is hard. It's a vision of judgment on a conscious but inert people. And I, I walk away, and I hope you do today, once more as Edom's story is being a cautionary tale it's a cautionary tale for kind-hearted and decent people who prefer to just not get involved. Through Edom's miscalculations, we learn that despite what we often tell ourselves, indifference is not inaction. Not to get involved is a choice. Looking the other way doesn't excuse us of responsibility. It makes us complicit in what happens next. Through Obadiah, God is calling us, I believe, to get in the game, to stop being a spectator, to be our brother and sister's keeper. And God's requirements of us are predicated on his faithfulness. They come out of the grace given to us all, this grace that's given to us all, even though we don't deserve it. We cannot, be claimed, we cannot claim to be changed by grace if that grace does not also flow out of us. And for those of us, for we who have been shown such love as in Christ, we cannot turn a blind eye. But if we have experienced, if we are being filled by the love of Christ, our eyes, in fact, will be opened, as will our hearts. And we will discover the wisdom, the power, the resources to live out of this love and grace we have been given. And to actualize, as Jesus promises, as he calls us to pray, 
one person, one day at a time, his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.